1: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. On our latest episode, I have an interview with comedian AJ Lamar, and then my pal Garth Jones introduces his new Osploitation segment, Pass the Amel, as we look back at Mad Max. My name is Justin Hamilton, and we're avoiding the Night Rider here On Big Squid. Welcome to our latest podcast. I'm very excited to introduce you to AJ Lamar. This is his first appearance on Big Squid. And I'm a big fan of his. uh, After the Sydney lockdown finished, (laughs) or as anyone in Melbourne would call it, you call that a lockdown? (laughs) And I'm guessing the rest of the world calls it, wait a minute, Melbourne, hold my drink. (laughs) Anyway, after the first... Sydney lockdown finished, or the only Sydney lockdown finished. My first gig back was with AJ, and I hadn't met him before. Uh, big fan, right off the get-go. I thought he was fantastic, he was very funny, he was a good guy, and it was just so nice to see someone dressed up and bringing glamour back to the stage. Like, I'd just spent 10 weeks catching myself in the mirror in a tracksuit and, you know, shorts. So, seeing someone look fantastic was just glorious for my four eyes. (laughs) So I was keen to get him on the podcast, not only to introduce you to him, or maybe you're already a fan, so maybe this podcast will just give you a little bit more insight into AJ. But I'm keen to do some more work with him down the track, so this is an opportunity for you to Get in there on the ground level, and then when he turns up on, say, our next live show, you'll be able to really enjoy where he's coming from. Also, my good friend Garth Jones begins a new segment, Past the Amel, where he's going to talk us through the genre of exploitation. We thought we'd start at a place that would be at least familiar for you. You might not have seen this movie, but we thought we will start at a place that... At the very least, you've heard about it. And so we thought we'd begin with the original Mad Max movie. We've been talking about doing this segment for a while, so I'm really glad I can finally uh, get it up. This has actually been quite a few months in the making. And as a heads up as well, in a couple of weeks, I have an interview with the author of XX, a novel graphic, Ryan Hughes. And it's a big interview. You know from previous episodes of Big Squid that I've talked about how much I loved the book, and we had a little bit of contact online, and the other day I recorded a big interview with him. I got up at 4.30 in the morning and was hoping to, you know, get 20 to 30 minutes, and it is much longer than that. He was so generous with his time, I couldn't believe it. So, I'm giving you a heads up because it won't come out for a couple of weeks. But if you were thinking of reading XX, or maybe you've already begun, just giving you a bit of time to get further into it. There are mild spoilers in the podcast, but if you want to wait and hear the interview first before committing to the novel, you'll be fine as well. Personally, I don't think the spoilers detract from anything. I personally went into the novel knowing very little and found that to be a great way to enjoy uh, the the complete work. But if you want to wait and listen and then decide, oh yeah, this sounds like something I'd be into, you'll be fine. It's not really giving away too much. I tried to talk very obliquely around uh, a lot of the plot points and uh, specifically one. <laughs> I actually talked to him for a little bit before we started recording, so I didn't give anything away. But if you read the book, and you get towards the end, or when you get towards the end, you know me, there's something that'll make you laugh a lot. It's not necessarily funny in the book, but just because of our relationship. So, that's happening in a couple of weeks. Uh, If you have read it, or you're about to read it, or you are reading it, Head over to our Big Squid Facebook page, join our private chat group so you can share your thoughts with not just me, but all of our community there who are wonderful. There's so many different chats going on, lots of different threads, and I really enjoy it there. I don't enjoy Facebook, but I really love our community and I'd love you to be a part of it. One more quick thing. I was going to have Rove on this podcast to talk about the Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Now, as I've alluded to uh, in the last couple of podcasts, I've been working on a TV show, and they are long hours. And on Friday night, I got out of the studio past 11 o'clock. So I was keen to watch it, raced home, I was buzzed, actually, because I liked the trailer, I liked both characters, I thought it was an interesting premise, and then I watched the first episode, and I thought it was fine. Literally that. Fine. I reckon, eight eyes. Fine. And, look, I just don't think there was much meat on the bones. I didn't dislike it, but... I've heard everyone involved in this series refer to it as an eight-hour movie or six-hour movie, however many episodes there are. Six, eight-hour movie. Anyway, you get the gist. And that drives me mental because that doesn't work for me on TV because the form of TV is episodic. You can still tell a long-form story, but each episode has to be its own thing. And I just thought this first episode felt like the opening act of a film. And by the time we hit the most interesting part of that first episode, it finished. Like, I'm not going to give anything away in case you haven't watched it yet, but the most interesting thing happened. I was like, here we go. And it was the credits. And then I sat through the credits in case there was something at the end and there wasn't. So, yeah. Uh, I'm just going to hold off and give it a few more episodes to see if it is worth discussing before I bring Rove in. Rove's busy as well, and I'd rather just have more to talk about. Otherwise, it will just be 20 minutes of me saying, yeah, it was okay. And you know what? I don't think that feels interesting to record, and I don't think that's interesting to listen to. I don't want to do that to you. I want to have... I want to have some emotional attachment to what I'm talking about, even if you're being critical. Uh, anyway, at the very worst, if it doesn't improve, for me, that is, like you might have loved it. I hope that you got more out of it, uh, more out of it than I did. But um, at the very worst, if it doesn't improve, after three or four eps, we'll bring Rove in, and at least we can discuss that because there'll be more to really dig into. Anyway, as I've always said, I'm always keen to hear your thoughts, And head over to the Facebook page and please share them. We've already got a thread going there. It seems like the big squid community is on the same wavelength with me. That doesn't mean you're incorrect to have enjoyed it. Come in. Convince us we're wrong. Like I'm up for that. And I would much rather love things. (laughs) That would be on my tombstone. He would have much rather loved everything. Okay. I'm going to bring in Garth Jones, a friend of mine who is also the author of the soon to be released Homebrew Vampire Bullets, a book that Tony Martin, yeah, that Tony Martin, described as fucking great stuff, relentlessly funny and inventive. I was pissing myself. I've uh, read a lot of Homebrew Vampire Bullets, well, I've read iterations of it, and. That feels like a perfect quote. Garth and I have been friends for a long time. He's made posters for The Shelf. Uh, If you ever went to our shows in Melbourne, uh, he created the app we used for my show Circular back in 2011. Back in 2011, we had an app where you could, it was just around the time where people were always on their phones when they're in the audience. So we created an app that had different stories. And if I said something, you could, if you found that interesting, you could click on things and you could find a little, bits of extra story etc and (laughs) look to be honest it didn't work because as soon as you say to people you know you can get out your phones the whole audience looked at you as if to say you're tricking us aren't you and instead I just had a really focused audience for that whole season (laughs) you can't win sometimes anyway felt like a good idea and uh, I love Garth he's fascinated by the works of decadent rock and roll scholars debauched fantasists and occult piss takers you can find more of his work at com, and I'm pleased to welcome him to this show with his very own opener. The so before we started recording, I was uh, talking to a mate of mine, and she'd never really heard the term osploitation before. And I tried to explain it to her and I discovered that, you know, when you know something but you don't know how to succinctly sum it up. And I was wondering, are you capable of doing that for us? (laughs) No. (laughs) (laughs) Great
0: catching up and I'll see you next time. But it's hard, isn't it? It's, It's, Yeah, it is difficult. I suppose it's a case of, um, what are you talking about, sort of the genre of film that might have started being made in the 70s when Australia was pretty confident about making weird shit and then sort of slowly fizzled out into the mid to late 80s? Stuff with limited budgets, I think, you know, concepts that you could get away with that were far more insane, lots of stuff that obviously no-one would dare film today either. Uh, you know, obviously some of the content... Is not for uh, 21st century <laughs> sensibilities a lot of the time. But I'm especially thinking of stuff like um, Fair Game. I think it was called Fair Game, something from the mid '80s, where you know the the cover of the uh, VHS was a woman strapped to the bonnet of a Ute, you know, underpants, that sort of gear. But then I think you know there was a slight resurgence with stuff like Wolf Creek as well, and a few things like uh, you know the what, Greg, what was his name, the director of Wolf Creek. Um, completely escapes me
1: I do know his last name you know what's unfortunate was I was talking about the work of Greg Larson earlier so I've got Greg's, Hmm. the wrong Greg's name in my, McLean
0: McLean yeah, I was going to say Lean. so there we go Yeah. Uh, but yeah I mean crossing a whole bunch of different uh, oeuvres I guess as well you know you've got like giant you know feral pigs in Razorback that are obviously paper mache half the time uh You know, what we'll get to, obviously, in Mad Max, which is obviously the sort of rev-head culture stuff. Lots of cars, obviously, lots of motorbikes, lots of crazy stunts, lots of boobs.
1: It's funny, isn't it? I kind of look at uh, osploitation films, it reminds me a little bit of when I first started comedy in the early 90s, where it's like, you've never had a bad idea. Like, you've had heaps of bad ideas, but you don't realise some of them are bad ideas, and you just commit
0: to them fully and there was you know i mean obviously you know george miller uh director of the mad max films and all the rest he was a doctor that was funding the films uh through his you know practice during the day because no one was going to finance the movies otherwise but there was a little bit more of that sort of punk spirit happening then sort of just just make it
1: And was that the appeal for you when you were getting into that uh, genre? Was it the sense of that there weren't rules, that it was just stick your hands in and and go for it?
0: Yeah, I think so. Like I, in terms of the the book project, Homebrew Vampire Bullets, it sort of spun out of working with a film distribution company for a few years was sort of the linchpin of actually getting going where I was exposed to a lot of those titles and seeing a bit behind the scenes as well of how the contemporary versions were made and not really living up to the same sort of aesthetics and values that the stuff that was coming out 40 years ago were. I I just sort of that DIY aesthetic the idea of just getting stuck in there and actually just making something that yeah there's there's no rules, there's no breaks on it just fucking go for it sort of thing really appeals to me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It literally can be summed up as fucking go for it it's it's funny ausploitation has found an audience overseas and it's quite relevant to someone like a uh, quentin tarantino what do you think it is about that genre that appeals to people overseas who might not have you know the background that we have
0: i guess we're pretty exotic you know australia can be perceived well you know the landscape you know the attitudes on film uh are- pretty unique in terms of how you how people perceive you you know obviously to americans we're a pretty fascinating breed and just the, obviously the even just down to sort of the the technical aspects of how the films were made you know they're really impressive in a lot of aspects you know c- cinematography wise stunt choreography obviously some of them are appalling like i re-watched howling three a little while ago <laughs> which is <laughs> Which is set in Australia and has got some very uh, questionable depictions of Indigenous culture, and uh, <laughs> it's 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 a ride. And yeah, again, it's sort of down to that sort of sort of paper mache aesthetic and just a bunch of. I think Barry Otto's in it. He was doing like a bunch of. You know, he made The Punisher a few years later, the Dolph Lundgren version, but he was turning up in whatever they'd you know throw him in the in the eighties. But yeah, I guess it's yeah, just that sense of like we. It was that sort of cowboy filmmaking thing must appeal across the ocean, across, you know, across cultures as well. Well, you know, we were going to talk
1: about Mad Max because it felt like for people who may not be across the term and may not be across the aesthetic, it felt like this was a good place to start, especially progressing through the three sequels. But the first film, I hadn't watched it in a long time and the opening is so visceral and... As a young boy, I found those men to be terrifying. Like, absolutely (laughs) terrifying. And I'm curious, like, how old were you when you first saw the original Mad Max and what was your reaction to it? And also, did you see them in order?
0: You know what? I don't think I actually saw them until I was about 19 or 20. I grew up in Broken Hill and they were pretty much the background to being a kid. I think... uh, Road, uh, yeah, Mad Max Two or The Road Warrior, as it, as it was called in the states, was made when I was four or five out there. So you always just had that in the background of your consciousness that, like the skid marks on top of that hill at that Mundy Mundy Plains, where a lot of those scenes take place. That's that was Mel Gibson. All that sort of stuff was just sort of imbued into your consciousness. But I don't think actually I, I think I saw two first, and because I could locate. All of those environments, and then went back and watched one, probably in the same sitting, actually, and that's all Melbourne. So it's, it's interesting in the sense that, like, it does give you a sort of the, the the landscapes and the environment definitely sort of give you that sense of society sort of breaking down, and like those oil the oil prices that it's based on having its effect as the world falls apart and things get worse and worse.
1: That's funny, isn't it? Because that must be coming out of the crisis in the 70s. That's right. Uh, because yeah. what is it? Mad Max is made in 79. So I guess it's it's kind of the echoes of the issues in the mid to late 70s that are uh, influencing that film.
0: I think George Miller said that oil crisis was happening and he was sort of trying to sort of transpose what was happening 10 years into the future and looking at, like, what would the... Because, you know, you can see aspects of the culture are still there, things are sort of teetering on the brink of being... of collapsing, but, you know, there's still sort of remnants of culture and civilization And it
1: does feel like it's on the edges of society as well. Like, it it's funny, you never see the cities, you just hear stories about them, and it feels like every little aspect of, say, initially the first Mad Max, like, that could be happening in fourth suburb.
0: Yeah and just yeah somewhere on the outskirts of Melbourne sort of just like out you know maybe out out near uh, Doncaster or something a little bit further <laughs> out of Cranbourne or something but yeah I mean by the same token the second one is there are probably three locations if you know Broken Hill so uh, you know they, they sort of lean on the same slots. and um, I'm heading out there next week and apparently they're rebuilding the refinery set. Yes. That the Valkyries have fortified from her humongous. And there's apparently, yeah, they're putting it back where it was. So that'll be an interesting one to check out.
1: <laughs> you have to take photos for us. It's funny, I found all this Mad Max Road Warrior stuff and I was like, I'll, I'll save that for our next podcast. But yeah, rewatching this, it's fascinating because I hadn't watched it for a while. And it's interesting the way they set up Max because you don't really even see him. It's quite a while into the movie, but he seems to represent a very Aussie male suburban ideal of he's just a guy working on his car and he has to go to work. And then by the time you finally see him, and it's kind of a bit of a hero shot in this, you know, lower budget kind of movie. But it's funny, as soon as you see Mel Gibson, you look at him. And even though he becomes a much better actor over time, that exact moment that you see Max, you look at him and you go, that's a movie star.
0: Absolutely. And he was like 22, I think. Yeah. At the time. And yeah, yeah. just thinking of, you know, all those. All of that set up sort of like um, aspects of like a slasher film, uh, you know, stuff that would go on to be, you know, sort of echoed in stuff like Terminator, you know, just all that sort of like all those iconic shots and sort of setting him up as sort of like this apex predator as well <laughs> when it comes to like, you know, King of the Revhead sort of thing, like the <laughs> master of the vehicle and like... It's also, you know, interesting, like, you know, the cops are all sort of like top guns. Like, there's elements of, you know, fighter pilots and cowboys there, like the the Ray-Bans and all the rest. And and they're sort of virtuous as compared to, you know, because we usually hate cops now, but, you know, they're actually sort of... Larrikin bastards, but still quite virtuous. <laughs>
1: That's really interesting. It's a very different way of uh, looking at the archetypes that has changed over the last few decades, especially like Bisley as as Goose. Goose is almost the quintessential dude that you grew up with.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep.
1: There's a moment in the film that I found really interesting, which is his wife turns around to him after there's been you know someone who's had an accident on the road it's the opening of the movie and she says you've made the tv again and you think how many times has max nailed a bad guy to such an extent they're leading the news with it
0: <laughs> well he sort of does have to become a bit like robocop too like you know gets you know starts to get sort of like the weird you know gets sort of um the various additions, like the lo-fi Victorian, you know, the leg brace and all the rest, starts to get augmented a bit as he goes on. But also always sort of like once he decides he's doing something, he's just going to like implacably go at the target. <laughs> yeah. So there's a bit of cyborg stuff there in a sort of very lo-fi way. You know,
1: you said Top Gun as well, and I'd never really thought about that before, but in Top Gun, Maverick's best friend is Goose as That's well. That's right, Goose. Yeah, yeah. Goose has a bad ending there too.
0: You know, they're all doffing the Ray-Bans and all sort of hot around and doing the low-vibration low homoeroticism all the time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> or not so low, not so low sometimes.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, there's the great Tarantino piece from that movie where he compares Top Gun to being a movie about... It's, it's actually a homoerotic movie and they're trying to win Maverick over and you could look at... Mad Max as the bikers are all saying, Max, we know you're married but you should join us because it's so camp. Do you think that you know, speaking of the influence as well, you know when you see the scene for the Hall of Justice and it's falling apart I feel like you can even see that in the aesthetic of Zack Snyder's Justice League
0: Yep, (laughs) and probably Zack Snyder doesn't quite Uh, comprehend how camp he is either Uh, deeply unintentionally uh, homoerotic (laughs) everything he does is but yeah I mean all that stuff that was filmed at Melbourne jail I think Um, around there like that was yeah right in the city I think it was Uh, and the stuff in the garage was shot uh, underneath one of the universities in town it might have been RMIT but yeah it was in one of the car parks there yeah just great use especially like 70s Melbourne when it was obviously a borderline complete shithole I've just been reading uh, Dave Graney's last book, and he talks about the scene before we would have been there. It sounds like, I mean, obviously, pre-Jeff Kennett, uh, when Melbourne went to sleep at five o'clock, or pre-Steve Brack, sorry, but like, you know, before Jeff Kennett, you know, really drove it into the toilet.
1: One of the criticisms I have of this movie is that there's not enough of his wife jamming on the saxophone.
0: (laughs) Same, yep. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, like, I actually went and checked, and there's like a sax player in Thunderdome. Not, I don't think the second one had one. And Fury Roads obviously got like the Doof Warrior, so like they've upgraded. But yeah, like the saxophone actually had a through line in at least two of them. And just such a bizarre. (laughs) Maybe that was Lost Boys in you know influence of Lost Boys as well.
1: I think you could be right about that as well. I think there's just a a sense of humour infused in this as well. Like it's the. It's the corporate guy who's going off to go fencing, which is just bizarre, Mm. but it's funny. The club that Goose is at is called the Licorice Pride. Chief's
0: the gardener, the gardening chief, it is.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I was watching it and, you know, I was trying to think of what the influences on it were. And I don't know if this is correct, but I kind of felt like this has a bit more of a Stanley Kubrick, a Clockwork Orange influence uh, where, you know, you can watch that film and there's bits that are horrific and confronting mm. but also flamboyant and and a little bit funny. And uh, I felt like yeah. Mad Max had that too.
0: De- definitely Toe Cutter's gang, uh, definitely mm. Droogs.
1: Well, I didn't realise how camp it was as a kid. Did you when you first watched it or were you old enough that you kind of got it? I may have been too young.
0: I think by then because it was like it was so sort of suffused itself into the culture like it was influenced by punk that but then it went to in, went on to influence like glam metal and like you know your, your motley cruise your zodiac mind warps all the comics that were obviously influenced by the costume design and everything probably didn't pick it up as much at the time but definitely probably in the last yeah probably when I rewatched it seven or eight years ago when I um, interviewed Adrian from the Mad Max 2 Museum in Silverton. It was very very clear. <laughs> the overt sort of uh, campness of the whole thing. And, and then travelling through the four movies as well like, it, it never really subsides I mean, the war boys in Fury Ride, like, <laughs> quite spectacular really.
1: It's great. I've got some good thoughts on the second and third film but I, I want it's, to, it's really hard not to bring them up now but I want to save them for the next few films. Uh, just a few more things for you sure i timed this i don't know if you realize goose is in three accidents in 40 minutes <laughs> <laughs> <Stay> bisley. <laughs> bisley. the last time we see goose is you know you see kind of his hand all burnt and charred mm. and what's a little bit fascinating about the mad max films is that it's not necessarily a through line it feels like a reimagining each time yes. of each last film is a better version or a more ambitious version and would you like to see Goose come back in some way in in a in the next Max film or do you prefer that a through line is tenuous
0: I mean what have we had we've had uh, Hugh Keyes Burns come back twice oh, he's come back for Fury Road as um, Morton Joe he who was, he was Toe Cutter uh, Bruce Spence came back from <laughs> as a different character doing the same stuff uh, like, so weird. There's sort of feral kids in the third one, aren't there? Uh, but we don't get a feral kid, yeah. We really like the feral kid in the second. Let's have heaps of them. Yeah, let's make, yeah. Have tons of them, make them really fucking annoying. And and have An- Angry Anderson be uh e. Coyote for the <laughs> for the duration. Completely
1: indestructible.
0: Uh, but yeah, I mean, how, how old Steve Bisley now? He'd be the same age as Mel Gibson. Yeah, you could bring Bisley but back, right? He, he could be, a he, yeah, I mean, maybe in Furiosa.
1: Or do you... Do you bring Mel back as someone completely different? Uh, is Has he been...
0: Has um, his uh, reputation been revived?
1: Look, like, not for me, but <laughs> <No>. <laughs> <laughs> he seems to still be popping up in films. I think he's got Passion of the Christ, too. But he's... <laughs> uh, yeah, well, thank goodness. Like, I had so many questions at the end of the first one. I need that shit resolved.
0: Oh, yeah, what, what's going to happen to Jesus? Yeah. <laughs> but, and that's another, you know, no, I guess another aspect of... Uh, I mean... In in the sense that like each film takes aspects of the previous one and reimagines it and sort of builds the myth and sort of you know that sort of questionable narrative sort of stuff. Um, There's also the various sort of like Christ analogies, or like you know the idea, you know Mel being a reluctant saviour, some Max being a reluctant saviour sometimes, or primarily, but then the bad guys also. Could also be, you know, placed in that sort of zone as well in the way they relate to their various cults and all the rest. Um, yeah, sort of all the narratives have, like, sort of sort of converging with, like, both sides have got understandable sort of, you know, rationales, <laughs> and then and then Max sort of just stumbles into it and uh, <laughs> picks a side.
1: Could you imagine any Australian actor now being able to pull off this kind of
0: role? To play Mad Max. Yeah, or are they all too knowing? I think Tom Hardy was great, but... Yeah, so do I. Yeah, I don't think that... Yeah, I mean, he's not going to be back, obviously, at this stage, but, yeah, I I couldn't think of a... I wonder if Travis Fimmel could do it. Oh, yeah, yeah.
1: Because there's a very specific type of... It's really hard to describe, but there's a very specific kind of suburban Australian man who is into his cars and incredibly masculine, but also has this weird softness to them and... It can lean into a level of campness. And I think Fimmel brought that to the character of Ragnar in Vikings. And I don't know if he's been in the right role since to focus that kind of energy. And I wonder if uh, Max could be that role for him. Unfortunately, the only
0: other Australian actor of that, of that sort of generation I can think of at the moment is Jai Kourtney, So, Right. No,
1: <laughs> not John. No, no. <laughs> no. To finish off, oh, actually two things. One is, part of what I loved about re-watching this film, once again, I hadn't watched it in like 15, 16 years, the randomness of things that happen in it, including Benno, and Benno, who is this slightly mentally challenged character who just kind of turns up in the end and... As I was watching, I was thinking, if this was a Stephen King novel, he'd end up being the hero. <laughs> Do you like the randomness of the story? Is that kind of what adds to the osploitation uh, aestheticness of how everything kind of plays out? Like, there's a through line, but things just pop up that never really linger for too
0: long. I, I yeah, I like the sort of uh, perfunctory nature of you know. I mean, the first one just ends. You know, you wait. Yeah, people just die. yeah i saw a quote from mel gibson the other day uh talking about the second one but like it sort of applies to the the first two and then the fourth one um mel said still holds up because it's so basic it's about energy it didn't spare anyone people flying under wheels a girl gets it a dog gets it everybody gets it (laughs) it was the first mad max but done better the third one didn't work at all but yeah, it's just yeah, completely, you know, the arbitrary nature of the whims of fate and people just being written off, disappearing. You know, the film ends at sort of just cut your hand off, see you later. <laughs> that is one of the all-time great endings. And it just, you know, the credits roll and you're sort of like, well, what happened? <laughs> yeah, that I just got punched in the face for like an hour and a half. <laughs> and the second <laughs> one's like, I got kicked in the face for an hour and a half. <laughs> and
1: got some interesting things to talk to you about with the... In regards to the third one, but someone who's on this podcast a lot logs the third one because it was, as a kid, their entry point into Mad Max. And it's like, oh, okay, that's kind of
0: fascinating. That's like seeing the prequels first, yeah? Yeah, I think it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's exactly like that. On rewatching it, I, I mean, if we're going to jump, I, I mean, I didn't hate it. I just no. um, thought it sort of missed the point of what Mad Max is about because it sort of right. got lost in the sort of building the politics and the sort of ideas around Bartertown and, uh, you know, not enough cars. Not enough cars. Doing car things. Yeah. And I'm not like a car guy, but like I like seeing cars go fast and go over each other and, <laughs> you know, blow up.
1: That was actually my main criticism of the third film was like, where's the chase? Like I know there's yeah. a train here, but I'm, I didn't sign up for a train. I want... Big trucks and cars. That's what I want.
0: Yeah, not not ninety seconds or a five minute you know, yeah sequence at the end. I want the whole bloody thing. Not you know not not methane farming. Uh, yeah, inter- yeah, interesting world building stuff. But yeah, not enough to sort of hang in the end. In- and that was after the producer of the first two had passed away too. So yeah, sort of gotten a bit lost on that, I guess. So yeah,
1: yeah, I think so. But you know, the third one ends up being uh, important for the fourth one in a way because they kind of mm. build on stuff from the third one. But I'm really looking forward to delve into this stuff you know as I said we're going to start with the Mad Max films to begin with because people might not be across this genre so we'll kind of ease them into the world with something that even if they're not into these movies they'll be across it as an idea and then we'll go into some uh, interesting places. Like there's some stuff that you've suggested that I'm like, I have no idea what that is. And I'm really excited right. to find out about that. <laughs> Where can people find your work if they're uh, going to look for it online?
0: Sure. You can go to pastheaml.com That's A-M-Y-L. And all the social, uh, Twitter, Instagram, Medium, and Tumblr are all pasttheamyl at those respective sites as well.
1: Great. All right. Thanks for this, and uh, I look forward to uh, getting stuck into The Road Warrior. Thanks, Garth.
0: Cool. Thanks, Justin.
1: AJ Lamar is one of the rising stars in the Sydney comedy scene. He's clever, funny and erudite, but most importantly, a great guy who's fun company. I'm keen to do more work with AJ in the future. As I said, uh, hopefully we will be able to line him up for the next live Big Squid. And if this is your first time hanging out with AJ, I think you'll quickly see why I'm keen to do more work with him. Okay, let's bring in AJ. AJ. I was using you as an example last night. I was talking to uh, a young uh, comedian that I was performing with at the comedy store. Oh, yeah. I won't mention who it is. It's not, not that it's anything uh, detrimental, but on the Friday night, I thought he was dressed a bit casually for mm. the store. And uh, then on the Saturday night, he was dressed really well. And I think he looked really good. Mm. He, he suddenly, you know, that red curtain, he just, yes. it highlighted his shoulders. He looked awesome. And I felt like his material popped a little bit more. And I used you as an example. Like the first time we ever performed together, Mm. as soon as I saw you, it was like, right, I've got an idea of this guy. And you looked really uh, presented and you were ready to go. And I'm curious to know, is that something that was a conscious decision Mm. or did you just dress like that and well fuck this has worked out pretty well.
2: <laughs> well it's it's interesting. It was it's a little bit of both actually. So I used to when I first started performing in general, I used to do drag. Right. So I used to be a drag queen and um, I was a terrible drag queen. And
0: <laughs> why, why were you a terrible drag?
2: Oh, queen? I, I I hated lip syncing. Um, I hated dancing. Right. right. Um. Oh then God. I hated wigs, and then I hated nails, and then I hated makeup. So, <laughs> so I, pretty, <laughs> so all of it, all of it. But I didn't know at the time that I just like wearing suits from Zara. That was right. it. That was the longest journey ever to get to that stage. Um. So I I just had this arsenal of like. Clothes and costumes I always wanted to wear. Right. And then I was like, well, if, if I'm going into stand-up, then I'll just wear it. I've yes. paid for it. I've got an ABN. I'll claim it on tax. Yes. Like, <laughs> that's what I'm doing. And then I was chatting to Beck, Beck Melrose. Yes. And she was telling me an anecdotal story of another performer um, who was doing this material that was kind of self-deprecating. But she was dressing really, really nicely. And she was saying that she had learned um that if she as soon as she changed her outfit and looked a bit more like drab and a bit more casual her material popped because the audience were seeing like a connect between how she was looking yeah. and the material she was saying yeah and so like kind of both of those strings of journeys kind of lined up and i was like oh like i'm quite camp and i'm i'm kind of quite queer and the material i do is a little bit you know a little bit friendly awkward campy shy and i was like if i can explain that in one second of someone looking at me i've saved myself like a minute of setting myself up and oh i'm gay and this is me and oh what am i like um yeah so that's the roundabout journey of how i got there yeah no but that's uh, i think it's a really underrated aspect of Mm. uh
1: uh, of stand-up comedy and like it doesn't mean everyone needs to be dressed up like your uniform can be casual if that's what your material is but uh, it's interesting they they can be that disconnect can't there with Mm. the my favorite is the really handsome buff heterosexual 20-something male comedian on stage doing a little bit of i'm just really not sure about women and you're like come on mate look at you
2: (laughs) exactly we actually had um so I run, a, I run a show in Sydney and we got some funding to do like a newcomers workshop and program. So instead of just doing the newcomers night, we um, teamed up with GD and I got some like local um, legends in to kind of like help people. So we had a workshop where they practice some material and we talked about different elements of what it is to kind of perform stand up. Yep. What are the terms to how do you apply to be in a room and what's etiquette like do i have to stay for every gig that i ever go to for the entire show can i leave you know all of that kind of stuff that everyone wishes they got um in the first year and one of the guys absolute legend chris um if you look at him you'd be like he's he's a blokey bloke he's got a big beard he's kind of like kind of burly guy and he's gay and he's a bear but he happened to be wearing this top that said bloke and it was just like bloke. And I think it was a brand of beer. But he just said bloke. And he gets up on stage and he starts setting himself up as like this really like heterosexual guy, blah, blah. And then he kind of lands a punchline that was like, oh, I'm actually gay. Like, I think one of his lines is like, I look like the kind of guy who, who has a divorce settlement and pays alimony. <laughs> like, that's, that's the setup line. And then so when he comes in with like gay, like everyone cracked up. And he was like, oh, I wasn't like, I'm not sure what to wear. And I was like, wear that exact top. Wear the top that says bloke on it because you are just setting that punchline even more. And every time he does it, it's hilarious because you can see the audience go, oh.
1: Yeah. Yeah,
2: that's so good, isn't it? You know, uh, that reminds me of Cameron Duggan's joke.
1: Mm. Have you seen Cameron recently where he... actually might be an older piece, but it still makes me laugh when he says to an audience, I look like a guy who's had many fathers. Uh, And then he he points out, still together. Like... (laughs) How'd that happen? You know, and it's just a really funny uh, uh, twist as well. Yeah. But also, what I like about that is, you know, watching, uh, uh, performing with some comedians last night mm. and uh, looking at some of the uh, younger comics. Uh, some of this material is funny, but there is an interesting thing where I reckon if you ask them, why do you say that joke? Mm. They couldn't really tell you why. And, and sometimes you see that in routines. You can see there's like four different ideas and it yeah. has a bait and switch that effectively works in the moment. Yeah. But when you don't really think about it afterwards because it's kind of like fast food because it's just yeah. a quick snap of a joke, but it didn't really land because you, you don't really understand why they're saying it. And this guy going up and doing all of this stuff with Bloke and then giving the reveal yeah. is like, oh, you have yeah. been... Like, an audience really enjoys yeah. being
2: manipulated in a fun way. Yeah. And it's, I, I find this, like, the congruency as well, like you were mentioning, through the entire set. Like, I have, like, I kind of like dark humour. I, think, I yeah. think that's the thing when you when you do stand up a lot and you see it, you tend to like the really odd stuff. The odd right. stuff sticks out. Or I find, at least, for my taste, like, something's really weird and I'm like, oh, like, this has caught me off guard because, I I didn't expect it. Um, and occasionally I've written some, like, not tremendously dark, but for me, dark jokes, Um, and I performed them and they flatline and it's a similar element to that because I set myself up with certain types of jokes and an aesthetic that's like quite like hey and all of a sudden it's like boom and I haven't managed to like figure out the line of how to use that energy that I've created to emphasize that and I'm in the shock stage Um, and I'm like oh like It's interesting to play with. I haven't yet figured it out how to, like, manoeuvre that atmosphere in the room, but I'm, like, aware of it, and it's interesting to pick up on what I've been putting out, and then, like, maybe I need to do a completely different set if I'm to use that joke, or put it in a different place in that set. That's, yeah, and this is the really fun part of uh, comedy, or Mm. doing stand-up, is
1: you you know that the idea is correct, and Mm. you know that there is something there that you can play with, But finding your way into it, it it could be that it lives in a completely different set. It could be Mm. something as simple as a sentence of, hey, I know I've been looking fantastic tonight, but I have some dark thoughts. And then, you know, you give them something, you give them two things that are actually not that dark and then you hit them with the third. It's like... Oh well, there you go. Yeah, (laughs) you know, but you can sign a segue them into it kind of thing. But it's you'll know
2: you just it's the one day it just happens and you're like you improvise it or and you're like oh I sat there in a cafe for two hours trying to figure out the right sentence and I just came up with this on the fly and I found it great. Uh,
1: (laughs) You you, you, you do you have to you have to put in the hard yards in the
2: cafe to get to it's you you know you do hour long
1: shows and everyone goes oh I love that bit and you're like ah. why didn't I just do that immediately? <laughs> that was the the throwaway line that I'll now keep but oh, yeah. but that is doing the hard yards. Just um going back I'm really hmm. interested in uh the drag uh, yeah. aspect and and so uh so we know where it ends. Yeah. Like we're going full Christopher <laughs> Nolan Memento here but uh I'm I'm curious to know so what made you decide that you wanted to try
2: drag? That is a very good question. I I feel like there was a part of me who k like i only came out when i was 21 which is relatively late for a, well i think gen y is that middling like generation where some people came out at like nine and they knew the terms and you know their yeah. family loved them and the school was great and everything and then like some uh parts of gen y like myself were still like you couldn't have a gay teacher who was out everyone you know yeah. like and uh, so we're that age where like it's it you know hit and miss between um who you ask but i was definitely of the stage where it was like still quite taboo like the only term like drag that i'd heard of when i was younger was associated on the same part as like drug dealers it was like those oh, people wow. that go to clubs and like they're they're drug dealing and they're sordid and all, it's all of this stuff and that's the only reference i had for most of um like what it meant to be gay even wow. though i was gr- i grew up on like um how my, not how my, um. Oh, gosh, what's that show? I've forgotten the show. I remember the scene where he's roller skating through the entire city. Oh, um, um, the village people. No, oh, it's a British... I grew up on a lot of uh-huh. British vast. It's, like, um, now forgotten them all. Carry On. I love right. the Carry On series. Right. Oh, well, They're all gay, but, like, they don't mention it. No. <laughs> Most of them are gay. Yeah. But, like, so I was absorbing it, but I didn't know that's what gay could be, yes. and that was, like, there were other people because it was usually mostly hidden in those kind of keeping up appearances type things where yeah. it's all quite camp. And all like, quiet, like so camp, so camp. Yeah. But like they're all straight, so it's just like this disconnect. Um, you know, term. usually with one female character that they yeah. say hideously sexual things towards you. So we can't be gay. Like he's talking about her tits. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> so I grew all of that. So I had this weird kind of understanding of drag. So I ended up doing a lot later, probably when I was about. 26 i came out when i was 21 and i was still like well i'm gay but i'm not I am not gonna do the gay stuff like i'm just gonna be you know the kind of gay person who just doesn't talk about it and then i realized that that was also in built in like this internal homophobia because it's like oh if i can say i'm gay yep but then... Sorry, uh, where,
1: where was this? Where were you living at this
2: point? Um, I actually came out when I was living in the States. I just sent a text to my family being like, I'm gay, deal with it. Um, and then, <laughs> they were lovely. Um, and then I came back to Australia about two years later after I finished okay. my degree.
1: And, and was it one of those things where, I've spoken about this recently, I had a, a friend uh, not that I've known for life, a long time who hmm. wanted to talk to me seriously about something, and I sat down with him and uh, he came out to me, and I had a panic attack because I had always thought he was gay, and so when he came out to me i but I knew it was momentous for him, so I yeah. didn't want to Take the moment away, but I was a bit like, oh, you're oh, right, yeah, yeah. okay. And <gasps> oh, so, goodness, oh, yeah. so, <laughs> so, was it one of those things when uh, you know when you realized uh, that you were gay when you came out? Mm. Were people surprised? Were people just a bit, oh, okay, yeah, mm. cool.
2: It was interesting because I came to, I moved to Australia after that. So I, was, I finished, uh, I did a year abroad in the states when I came out. I went back to the UK to finish my final year yep. um, at University of Kent, and then I came to live in Australia properly, um, as in like you know get a job and start a life and everything. So no one knew who I was in Australia. So I just was able to be out from the beginning, right? Um, but in the UK, I technically never came out to anybody they just would have seen stuff online uh, that one day i have a boyfriend right. so it's it's interesting you say that because i technically never came out to anyone in the uk right um, yeah the uk is looking at facebook going what happened he has such a better haircut like <laughs> what <laughs> his girlfriend's a bit butch um, <laughs> um but it's it's so interesting like i haven't yeah. um well now i can't go back to the uk anyway because i covid but um i hadn't been back in years to UK, so my family know back there, my extended family, because my parents live here. But they don't... I've never had the conversation. I've never met them whilst yeah. being out. So, it's this very interesting thing While I'm quite out and um, pronounced in terms of, like, my Facebook and my following. Like, it's not um, hidden. But in England, it's like nobody... I've never had the conversation. Right. I've never been gay on the, on the country that is the UK, technically. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: Interesting. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure... You'll go back and it'll be, oh, it'll yeah. be fine. There'll be, you know, I'm, I'm guessing with good friends there will just be, uh, there'll be the people who, who just get it, yeah. and there'll be either nothing said or there'll be a funny little comment that acknowledges it, yeah. And then there will be the really lovely friend who
2: uh, makes too much of an effort
1: in, in <laughs> a way. So, so yeah. I guess you find that guy handsome, you
2: know? <laughs> sure. Oh gosh, it reminds me when my um when I first came out to my mum. My mum was um. She was she was oh she was totally fine with it, but she was more protective and worried because yeah. the world is not nice and yeah. she wanted to protect me. I remember I got a, a text one day. She was like, like, AJ, you've got to be careful. Like there was two people attacked on the street for being gay. And I was like, Oh my god, mum, where? And she was like, Uganda. And I was like, <laughs> and I was, and Oh, bless us. So I was like, I I I find it so beautiful. Ooh. Oh no, no, good pick. Um, I was like, I find it so beautiful that you care for gays across the world now. Yeah, but also you didn't have to tell me that. <laughs> no, it's okay. Like, it's, like- <laughs> it's it's terrible,
1: but where I am, it's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, um... I can't I can't have you worrying me every second about everything going yes. on in the
2: world um she phased out about she's she's That's like now. but That's it's very cute. adorable yeah
1: yeah um so you, uh, so you came out at 21 so uh were you a performer because i'm curious about the the yeah. drag side oh, yeah, of things so there. uh
2: were you already performing in some way uh, were you acting or i started improv theater sydney um, in attempt not to perform. Uh, I had done some stuff in drama and I was like, oh, it's fun and I want to make some friends in Sydney. So I'm going to try it for an improv school and then I'll meet people in the class and then maybe they'll want to go hang out and then I'll meet friends from there. So I never had this performer mindset. I was actually just trying to look and set up a bit of a life in Sydney. Um, and then, so I joined the first class and pretty much everyone in the class gone on like a house on fire. Um, it's where my My good friend Beck Um, Uh, We met in that class Before both of us Had started stand-up Yeah Um, I love Beck She's adorable She is a wonderful Beautiful human Um, And I met many other people In the scene Jack Mm Gow Who was in that class I'm trying to think Who else has done uh, Was this
1: a Was this a bear pack Was this This was
2: taught by Steen It was taught by Steen actually Yeah. Yeah Um, he taught our first class. So I started this class and all of a sudden we're going out to comedy shows. I'm meeting all these people and I didn't know a lot of them who they were at the time because I was pretty much fresh like three months in Sydney. So I'm yeah. meeting all these people and I didn't realise like like the the talents they had the shows they were doing how they integrated into the comedy scene in at large in australia and across the globe and so i was quite privileged in that aspect because i was just like getting like meeting some amazing talented people and just being like, oh hi that's great oh my god let will go to your show um and then from there i um started doing a lot more improv because i really liked it and i was meeting a lot of people and it was kind of building up a lot of great momentum and then um one day people were doing stand-up and i was like i'm never going to get on stage by myself like no thank you i'll stick with a team that's great but i can't tell jokes by myself that's bizarre um and then one day i was asked to kind of uh, be a part of this queer lineup and they'd kind of had some costumey thing and being brought up in this generation that also had a lot of rupaul's drag race in it i was like i'm gonna do drag i've seen it i can Yes, Mama, House Down Boots. Oh, cool. <laughs> like all of that stuff that just absorbs into you that I don't even know what it means. Um, <laughs> but that, I was like, I, all of a sudden, the doors opened to me being out here and that all of the modern gay culture rushed in. Uh, none of the legacy or the 78ers or the history, just all the contemporary um, drag race stuff, really. So I was like, I'm going to do it. It's drag. Um, and so I kind of started doing it then and i was like oh this is fun like i can take selfies and a lot of people like them and like all that kind of like very millennial part of me started yeah. kicking off and all the dopamine started flooding in and <laughs> i was like this is great um i ended up doing a um a show for mardi gras called dungeons and drag queens so we played D dressed in drag uh, we did a couple of lip syncs in between i was terrible um and then i ended up continuing that um show i was like i really like this show it's fun we had a massive turnout there's this kind of hidden niche of um lgbt plus communities and gamers right. that like is rarely talked about but there are so many people who fit that venn diagram and so when we did the show like we sold out four nights in a heartbeat at the um at pact yep um so then we continue doing this show and all of a sudden i've got a monthly show at the imperial hotel yep you know the 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 home of uh, priscilla queen um, of the desert like where they start their journey from like this very important like element of drag history in australia yeah. and all of a sudden this queen who doesn't like hair and nails and lip syncs is like having a monthly show in the basement <laughs> uh, <laughs> so i kind of just kept on rolling with this tumbling drag performance thing and until one day um someone asked me to emcee uh, a little emerging festival they were doing to support new acts and i was like well emceeing is not like stand-up like it's it's not i don't have to tell jokes i'll just say like hey coming up next is blah 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 again not knowing anything about what an emcee does right, right. and now i'm like oh that actually was a bigger step than doing stand-up that yeah. requires a lot more yeah but in my head i was like i'll just introduce them i'll get a card i'll be like jojo's playing the piano give it up yeah. Um, and then <laughs> and then all of a sudden I was in drag on stage by myself and I was quite comfortable and saying stuff and people were laughing at right. the stuff I was saying yeah and I had that one unique moment after that very 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 long journey of being like oh I'm on stage and people are laughing at things I'm saying and it's okay yeah uh they don't hate me they don't think I'm boring. Um, in fact, like, people want to take photos of me afterwards. And were like, I met someone, like, at a party many months ago now when parties were a thing. He was like, <laughs> I remember you. You did this show. And I I took this photo and then went through his phone and was like, look at us. And I looked terrible. And I asked him to delete it. Um, <laughs> but it it, like, clearly had stuck out to a lot of people. And so I was like, ah, oh, this is... Okay. Right. I could do this. Yeah. Um and then from there I started asking around for um performance spots and my friend again Beck um had that point 1 raw comedy. So yeah. she was uh like I think like a, a year into it at that point and so she was like, "Oh, like I can tell you who runs like great rooms that you'd be a part of." I was doing like um the cafe lounge was like my second gig. Oh yeah. Um <laughs> which I didn't know was like a very big deal. Um and I was like, oh and like luckily like it had worked out. I didn't I didn't crash and burn and everything like that. But um the more I was doing uh five-minute sets the more i realized doing drag for a five-minute set was not gonna
0: happen too much
2: three hours uh in front of that for five minutes was not gonna happen so i eventually started toning down a lot more what i was doing and then now i kind of end up in this very kind of like queer-esque like you know your joyous lesbian auntie in the city type aesthetic right
1: (laughs) (laughs) the it it sounds like the equivalent of the musical comedy act who suddenly realizes if i get rid of the guitar i don't have to worry about a di and i don't have to worry about a chord and i don't have to worry about a sound check actually this is heaps easier (laughs) yeah and a hundred percent the so as the uh, when you were dressed up in drag, mm. did you have uh, a different kind of persona to how you do stand up, or have it... Uh, like because mm, it, yeah. it, it feels like it would be more of a of a character in inverted commas?
2: Yeah, well, actually, it was one of the things where I realised I didn't like drag inherently was because I had a name um, called Cleo because I'm a, a massive uh, Egyptology fan, and um, I was performing and people call me Clea, and i'm like i'll just call me aj like i just it just it's my name i'm just me i'm just me under here it's i'm gonna act the same but people expected me to be a lot more like sassy right and a lot more meaner and a lot more catty and i mean my you know all of the tropes that come with being a drag queen and that was very incongruent with who i am as a person yeah and i couldn't some people were able to embody a character um i'm very much just i'm just me and I, I have a tired me energetic me but i can't do character like that inherently to be like now i've got a wig on i'm for the night i am this person so it was kind of a big indicator for me at that point that okay maybe i don't need all of this stuff yeah
1: that's a that's a really good trajectory though because mm. that sometimes that can take people like a decade yeah. to kind of work out and to be able to go and like do this and oh you know what i don't really feel like it represents all of me and i feel like in a way it's probably confining you and stopping Mm. your growth because you're having to live up to this ideal of what a drag queen is so what a great uh what a great set of beats to get to where you are now also Mm. it sounds like your naivety of the rooms and the people was great because it meant that you weren't building shit up too much before you went and did it yeah so you just go in you go I want to do well, I've got the nerves that you should have, but I'm not thinking if I don't get this right I'm never yeah. coming back to the comedy lounge, you know. Yeah. And so that's there's a there's a freedom to that, mm. isn't there?
2: Yeah, and it's and it's I also feel like it, it speaks to um this kind of contemporary idea that change is not allowed. We we I think as a society we're like we all should be able to change, but people are very kind of inherently stuck on these ideas that you can't actually change that. Dramatically. You can only do things a little bit at the time. Like for me to be like, oh, I actually gonna stop drag now, I'm gonna do stand up like a lot of people are like, oh <laughs> Right. Well, we don't like that anymore. Right. But I'm like I'm still me. Like I was yeah. doing the same jokes, but some people are like, Well you're not you're not doing drag, I'm not like a part of I don't want to do that anymore, I don't want right. to come watch you and I'm like, I was doing the same thing. Um so it was interesting from that perspective as well, but yeah i'm kind of blessed i've been like um luckily naive um yeah <laughs> for my career thus far and, it, and it's helped um a lot you know not going going to rooms with very big names with like impressive careers that i just was not privy to at the time and not being like oh my god how am i going to perform after them everyone's going to hate me and then I'm, i just, I'll just sit down and just not, yeah do uh, you know let those voices predominate my thoughts but instead of just being like oh you did great yeah, and then they're like, "Who's that kid? Just giving me props." <laughs> I like just walking around, and be like, "Oh, well done!" Like <laughs> as I go up, like merrily on my way in my pantsuit. Um. <laughs> for for the most part, I
1: think that's a really good thing. But then, like I've had that in in the past. This is going back nearly two decades, where I was meant to do a, I was meant to headline a gig in Melbourne during the comedy festival, and Al Murray popped hmm. in and said, "Can I?" Jump up and do five before the headliner, and he did like half an hour, and uh, and then he just killed, and it was the end of the night. And I, I said to the guys who were running it, um, why don't why let's not have me go up because. This has been great And they said Oh yeah No 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 Fair call Why don't you headline next week?" Go, okay no worries And then the following week There was a comedian Who came along Who said they wanted to get up And do five And I'd only vaguely Heard of this person mm. At this point And I was Oh I've, I've heard some good things So yeah And this guy did 45 minutes And this was back <laughs> when Like I'd already put this gig off And it was paying me Essentially the money That I would buy groceries For the last mm. two weeks Of the festival yeah. So I had to get up And I died and oh. I've never worked harder to have such an yeah. average response. But the person that I got up after uh, was um, Daniel Kitson. And this is how much Daniel Kitson killed. He opened and he said, uh, I-, I-, I bought some trousers today and the audience lost it. And even he didn't, un- he was like, why are you laughing at that? And I'm like, why is everyone laughing that much at that? This is this is a disaster. And then I went up afterwards and it was, um... anyway, good memories. You know, keeps Kitson- <laughs> it. Keeps you humble, you know? Uh, Nothing just... better than having that moment yeah. where you go, I've got no saliva in my face. It's like, oh
2: man, what happened to the air in here? <laughs> oh gosh, don't don't uh... I I went to an open mic once um, and I I was trying this brand new six minutes material and the guy before me did this horrible, horrible set. It was... Like, I don't want to go into it. It was pretty graphic. But it was very, like, kind of horrible, kind of, like, taboo. The audience hated it, essentially. Mm. It was a very kind of disgusting set. Mm. And so I followed this lovely gentleman. And I have never... Experienced a room of like very uncomfortable people not making a single sound for six minutes. Oh yeah, and it was that that same aspect of like, oh gosh, yeah, like come on, anybody, 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 anybody. yeah, give me eyes, eyes, I need someone sympathetic yeah. eyes right yeah. now, and yeah. you just like you're like oh goodness, and you just leave the stage like <sighs> like I'll, I'll take a grimace, I'll take yeah. a grimace, <laughs> and I'll convince myself that it was not a- Part smile I'll, t- I'll take you like Miming with your hand Like a face At this point in time I'll pretend- be wrapped I'll be wrapped <laughs> <laughs> So I feel I feel you to that Like yeah It's just that level of like Oh my god And when you know You're about to walk into that Oh uh, yeah That feeling of like Well <sighs> And there's
1: there's a, there's a brief moment Where And this is the thing That keeps you coming back There's this brief moment Where you think You know maybe I can do this Yeah And then, like, 30 seconds later, you go, why did I think that? Like, why didn't I just set myself on fire and shoot myself into the sun? It would have been preferable (laughs) to this experience.
2: But that's kind of why I love comedy. Like, I I, I think of it as, like, some, like, hybrid of, like, funny social Sudoku. Like, there's an element where it's strategic. And if you, like, look at the numbers correctly, you can align the right number in the right box. And there's a technicality to it. And then at some point that whole premise and the number system you've been working with actually doesn't translate. It's right. a, it's the wrong numeric system you've been working with <laughs> right. the entire time. So you were technically correct and yeah. on point. But the audience for this night I like, meh. Yeah. The audience the next night crying at you like saying the word trousers. Oh, yeah. And it's that, yeah, it's the fun element of like, what am I going to get? I've, yeah. I've planned. I've yeah. put my strategies in place. Now yeah. let's see how they go. You can't be angry for choosing a career that's not
1: boring when it's yeah. not the same every time. Yeah. You have to go I, this is why I do this. Yeah. So you also just mentioned two things uh, that I want to come back to uh hmm. that I have equal interests in. One I have only uh, like I have interest from afar, but one uh is something that I used to be right into and that is uh Dungeons and Dragons, yes. which I so I'm curious to know where you first discovered D&D because Mm. for me, it was as a kid when E.T. came out and they were playing D&D. And then I went into the, I think, uh, Angus and Robertson and I saw the original Mm. first edition Ah, and bought it. And (laughs) my friends and I used to play it. I wish I'd, you know, because I was a kid, you know, we cut up all the pages and everything. (laughs) You look back at that probably would have been worth a bit now. But uh, I, I was a big big fan of D&D and yeah. uh had so much fun uh playing it and uh and I've really enjoyed like I haven't played it in like decades but I really enjoyed that it's yeah. around again it's like one of those things like when you said D&D I was like oh D&D and <laughs> yeah. uh, so h- how did you get the interest because hang on how old are you I'm 28 right so I'm 48 so there's a there's a big gap mm. here so I'm curious to know
2: what was your introduction to that I don't think I had a it's kind of like when people ask me like oh, do you remember when you found out Santa wasn't real like I never remember when yeah. I kind of always knew I think at some point <laughs> or at some point it was made aware to me and I was like alright and I just kind of sailed on Like, um, and the same with D&D like I never had this kind of formal introduction I think it was always part of pop culture, like any American high school film ever, was like, look at the nerds playing d and I'm yeah. a jock and I throw a football. <laughs> um, <and laughs> that's that's all the 90s high school films from America. Um, and so it's, it's always played in my mind, but I've always been a big fan of video games and gaming and board games in general. And a lot of that kind of lore that comes from D&D inspires so much of um, that uh, like you know, board games where they're based on castles or anything with an orc yep. in it or an elf, or they all have these roots back into like D and D, and obviously, um, actually, I wonder, I've never found out. Lord of the Rings came first, I believe. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and they all kind of like have this origin, like kind of like the evolutionary tree. If you string every all these animals that look different, like at some point they come from the same origin yeah. source. Um, But it was during that Mardi Gras show when someone said, would you like to be a part of it? And I was like, I've never actually been able to play the game. Yeah. I've heard of the game. I love the game. But because it requires someone with a lot of knowledge about the game and a group of people with the time commitment regularly to play it. Yeah. Um a lot of those factors don't align easily unless you're an adult or unless you are a kid with very good organized friends. Right, right. <laughs> Which I was not privy to either of those friends right. or organized ones at that. <laughs> um, and so, oh gosh, that sounded drab. I was fine. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, so we played we played in this live show. First yeah. time I ever played d I had oh, no clue what right. I was doing. Uh, I played this old elven woman. And she was kind of Jehovah Witness-esque. Right. She would like, instead of like using like spells, I think mean, she was a bard and she would just like attack people by using prose of this faux Bible that she had. And I remember, I remember like random snippets. i would just get a book and i would be like, I'll pick out a word and i would be like, and then Jesus said, why are you in the parking spot that I clearly indicated to go in? And I would just go off on this tangent and people enjoyed it. Great. Um... <laughs> And then afterwards, when we I was like, with the people involved, I was like, oh, I actually really want to continue doing this. Yeah. I enjoy the game and people like it and we like it. Let's just do it. Keep doing it. Um, and still to this day, we play it. We have it as a podcast and we do live shows occasionally. And um, I'm still the ignorant player. I'm still the player wow. who's like, um, oh, yeah, yeah, that spell, that spell that I do all the time that I've been doing for the last three years consistently. Uh, what's the dice on that one again right um, <laughs> and then everybody else around me knows everything like that it's like a level 3 spell and you need 2d6s and 1d10 and roll it twice <laughs> and all of that into, and you can use this because you're wearing this armor and I'm like thank you yes <laughs> and I will now do that and I will do it. but um so yeah it was only up until that point but ever like before then I've always wanted to play but just the the alignment of all of the yeah the requirements needed for that were never right yeah um but it's a beautiful game. It's fun, and I was lucky. I had a yep. friend who
1: was a couple of years older than me. He was also into. I can't remember quite what these were called. If I can look it up without being too distracting, hmm. I think there were. They were like choose your own adventure books,
2: but they oh. were were they
1: fighting fantasy?
2: I can't remember, but I know what you mean. I think my my partner was playing one recently. Actually, oh he really? delved back in online. Is it Steve Jackson? Is the. Um,
1: American game designer, Steve mm. Jackson. Let's just get it right up there. Uh, it is like Scorpion Swamp yeah. was one of the games. What's, what's it called? What's it called? Someone, people are listening to this going, mate, it's blah, blah, blah. And I was like, yeah, I know. <laughs> just that's screaming at us. That's what I'm trying to look up, mate. Why are you stressing <gasps> that, me? Uh, mm. God, why is it not just telling me? It's just saying, book by... <laughs> no, sorry, I've just become... Fighting good. fan, it was fighting Fight fantasy. There, there you go. go. It was you Steve had it Jets. the whole time. I had it the whole time. <laughs> uh, so my friend was into that as well, <laughs> and he used to take like a uh, island of the lizard men and turn yeah. that into our own uh, D and D campaign. And he was also a big heavy metal head, like what you know, the the yep. classic cliche, the heavy metal nerd who's <laughs> across everything. So then he was bringing in uh, characters that were you know. Inspired by albums by anthrax and slayer oh, you know so
2: it was all yeah
1: heaps of fun and just creative you know just yeah. so creative and yeah no idea is a bad idea I, I probably spent more money on graph paper than i did on anything <laughs> and you'd have fun creating oh, your places beautiful for yeah that.
2: and um because and not only as the person also known as dungeon master or dm if you're not um uh privy to dungeon dragons um but also the players get to experiment with different chains of their own being like you yeah. can Im- be anyone you want to be whether yeah. that's very true to yourself or this very like um ambitious character that you wish you were you can make decisions that were like what if i do that i'm just gonna see what happens and right. i think it allows for that sometimes critical thinking development sometimes imagination sometimes creativity yeah that i think a lot of like a lot of the school curriculums um, actually lack. So, I think it's a great game, especially for kids to play. Yeah. Because you're just questioning things and it doesn't feel like learning, but you're like, what if I did this? Right. How would this play out? What if I do that? What if I said this? Yeah. And it's a safe kind of imaginative world to do that in. Yeah. And a good DM as well knows how to
1: kind of give a little nudge here and a little nudge there or just let something play out and... You know, it's crazy to think that you would sit around a table essentially with, you know, 20 sided dice and maybe, you know, some things written down and you'd have a map on some graph paper and you would genuinely get excited when, fuck, we're dealing with a dragon or, you know, a beholder has turned up. Or I remember my mate and I. Playing until like four in the morning, which as kids is late, and it was, uh, you know, the uh, the Dracula one, Raven uh, oh, craft um, I think, yeah, yeah.
2: So and getting like we freaked out while we were playing <laughs> it, and it's just pure imagination. It's so fun. We we actually we did a Christmas show at GD um, Giant Dwarf in Sydney, and we had Jordan Voskopoulos. Oh um, great. she came and played with us. And the the character like our DM had set up was this evil toy maker, and he'd like. Taken over the town and, like, was using these toys to attack people. Kind of in, like, a small soldier's-esque way. Um, one one little toy was this. Uh, and he was also, like, very old-fashioned. So all these toys were very, like... The Barbie does the girl jobs. And the, the male... The, you know, the Kens do the man jobs. Yeah. And one of them was... Um, <laughs> that we'd like riffed on the spot was this little office assistant who who um was in their kind of little plastic container that dolls are in that came with its own glass ceiling it's and then so funny. and then we had to help this little doll overcome that yeah and there's this beautiful moment where like Jordan's character was like here let me help you and smashes the little fake glass ceiling in the in the packet so she can be a manager and then <laughs> our DM is like oh it would have been you know more Better for me to do it myself, but gee, thanks. <laughs> it was just, it was just it's like, you, like because I think a lot of people think Dungeons and Dragons is going to be orcs, medieval, yeah. old, you know, timey wimey stuff. But it's like, oh no, you can have very contemporary, very weird stuff, very oh. political stuff, very, yeah. you know, you can have tanks and modern warfare. I know there's a, a podcast called Dungeons and Daddies, which is not the gay daddies. Right. Uh, <laughs> it's PG, right. but they're just fathers. They right. just Go around being dads in this universe, and like that's funny. Dungeons and puppies, where they're all like, pup, like running around like little dogs in the city, doing- right? And so it just just allows all of this like um, random creativity as yeah, well. Yeah, and it is. It's uh, and it kind of gets back to a little bit like
1: when you were really young, mm. and you would just. Play with the stuff that you had, and there there weren't rules. Yeah. So if you know, like if your He-Man action figure is meeting a Transformer, yeah, that just happened. Yeah, like and that adventure was that adventure. Yeah. It wasn't like, well, they can't meet. Like they're completely yeah. different universes. You exactly. Know? And the uh, other thing was, uh, you're uh, fascinated with Egyptology, mm. and uh, Egypt has always been a place that i've always been fascinated with i've always been uh w- really keen to go and see the pyramids uh, there, there is something uh like i'm not religious but mm. there there there's so much uh mysticism yeah. mysticism is not quite the right word that uh, but you know what i mean yeah you can feel it when you look at it and you know wow there is a lot of history here there's a lot of stuff going on and uh i'd love to know uh what uh piqued your interest
2: I think I've always, I, I found, I find a similar thing. Like I find the history of ancient Egypt to be like that kind of like, person you're attracted to in a bar wherever you are and they're kind of mysterious and like they're giving answers in a cool kind of suave way yeah. but like you're like I don't know what's going on with you but I'm intrigued anyway <laughs> like right. you haven't really given me an answer right. but I'm still here for it um, and it's the same with like the entire pretty much history because there's a lot that they do know but 10 times more that they don't and so even when you are reading things about you in that you're interested in they're like we still don't know if it was this that that or that but here's a rough story so you kind of get the same thing you get a a little bit to be like this has sparked my curiosity but not enough to be like and in 1949 when this person went into this build like you know you can yeah. have contemporary history and you're yeah. like well they did that and then they did that and then they did that and then they did that and there's 20 sources and here's video footage and um which i find quite appealing um and again being into board games and yeah. that kind of realm it comes up a lot as well it feeds into this kind of like um pre kind of yeah you either go the orcs and elves or you go of like roman history or greek right, right. or ancient egyptian or norse kind yeah. of um it was it's funny
1: i was as a kid it was it was uh probably greek mythology mm. and norse mythology through right. thor comics was ah yeah. oh, hang on this is this is a mythology and then you know you read uh you read the comic and thor's a handsome blonde haired guy and then you read mm. the, the <laughs> mythology and he's a big ginger yep. you know <laughs> and it's like wow alright I see what's going on here and then the, the, the fascinating thing about uh, the, the Egypt stuff the, mm. the, the, the Egyptian mythology is oh so strange compared to like you know after you've gone from greek and norse where they look like you and me and then suddenly they have the head of a jackal and and, yeah and the way it's sort of seemed to be intertwined with the the rising and the falling of the river nile and yeah and then and then just these fascinating things where you remember the uh i forget which this might be all the pyramids or it might just be the great pyramid Hmm. they had the Uh, the sections that went from the surface all the way in they thought they were places so they could breathe and then they worked out where the stars were and they were pointing at beetlejuice yeah and it's like whoa
2: that is
1: <laughs> what the fuck is going it's on so here? Fascinating. Yeah. yeah
2: i think one of the um early references that we have that people found out that the world was actually curved um or round rather not flat um apologies if you believe the world is flat um but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i doubt you're know, listening to the podcast um but one of the it's it, not necessarily Galileo Galilei but um one kind of like researcher scientist equivalent in ancient Egypt had set up two obelisks in two different cities kind of like one up in um, the top of Egypt and one at the bottom and noticed the shadows that were different at different times and the curve and they were like okay they you know did some rudimentary figurines to be like okay well this shows it can't be exactly straight Um, and so there was an element of like Um, that insight into scientific development here as well, which I find fascinating. I think that one of the most fascinating parts of um, Egyptology to me is that they run, at least what we know of them as a a people and a population, is that they run very differently to how our society is set up now. We are a fact-based society, and even religions, which people would argue, oh, they're not fact, I've never seen blah, 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 you can't prove they exist or not it's based on things did happen or they didn't happen you can't have um this story and that story if they compete in timelines or they compete in uh values and and stuff like that but the egyptians would believe every story um at once so um the earth was created in way a but also in way b and they are in contradiction to each other but that's okay because they both happened Where we as the people would be like, well, no, you have to pick one I either believe the god Amun, or I believe god Isis in this version In this cult of Isis or that cult of Isis But they were happy to believe multiple stories of origin Stories of trial, stories of combat, stories of the afterlife As the same thing That's fascinating,
1: especially we live in such binary times You're this or you're that What do you mean you're in the middle? Yeah, pick a side. Like yep. people love to say that. Pick a side, pick a side.
2: Don't make a, a choice. <laughs> but then it's like, oh yeah no nah, this so uh, I like both of them. So, you know. But it is also weird because it's not even necessarily like a choice to them. It's not yeah. a you're sitting on the fence. Yeah. It's like they're yes and yes. yes. I'm not being I'm not in contradiction with myself. Right. It is. Yeah. And, and, and when the majority is like that it's, it's very perplexing idea to understand how people navigated a very complicated religious system based on that because you're like how do people all conscribe to the same idea if the ideas are ever shifting right and you go from one town and they worship a particular god and yep. um, um, and then you go to the same town like a few years later and the story might have changed a yeah. little bit or another story or yeah. two more Oh, or not at all. Right, um. <laughs> that's
1: fascinating. And you, uh, you, what were you reading recently? Because mm. when we were uh, yeah. having a bit of an exchange, uh, you said there was something interesting that you were reading at the moment.
2: Well, it was actually on the in the um, the topic of um, religion. So it's a I, I tr- struggled to say this word polytheist. Right. polytheist a multi-god religion yeah. um so uh, many people probably know at least a few of them you've got isis you've got ra you've got set um basta if you're uh, <laughs> a bit more worried um and i was reading about um a pharaoh called akhenaten um and he is probably one of the most forgotten but important pharaohs in kind of the egyptian timeline in terms of he kind of broke tradition and decided to try and convert everybody into one single monotheistic monotheistic right religion to pray to the sun essentially called aton um so at that time there was many different gods um and there were stories about how the sun rotated through the sky you might have heard that ra and it goes along the river every day and night and um has to battle this serpent in order to survive and if he survives then the sun comes up the next day and yep. all of these beautiful beautiful um stories um and so he kind of broke tradition and was like no i've never seen these things before um i've never seen ra i've never seen set but i do see the sun i see the sun every day the sun is real this god is real we should be worshiping this god um, and so he kind of upended the entire Egyptian civilization at that point in time for many years who were conscribed to the same religion. Um, and was uh, like set up an entire new capital, kind of banished and outlawed, changed his own name, which in in Egyptian kind of um, culture is very kind of taboo. Um, they believe that words have a magic within them. That's it's called right. math. Um, and so, your name is a promise. a lot of like names um, for like women would be like good mother because it 's like a, a spell you 're giving upon your child, so she grows up and becomes a good mother right um, and so he changed his name to um, beneficial to artan I always forget that one, um, which basically means like he declared himself the most important person to this new god the sun and, and, and pretty much tried to dismantle this entire, like, thousands of years of uh, history and religion, which obviously didn't go out particularly well. Right. That's
1: audacious,
2: <laughs> isn't it? Like Scandalous.
1: Y- y- you, know, you know, when people say, if you had a time machine, yeah. what would you go back to? And people often pick, you know, like, the big things. Oh, yeah. But wouldn't you love to just go back and be there when he just gets up one morning and says, hey, I've had an idea. <laughs>
2: holy shit. I've got a, I've got a a little thing I want to try out. (laughs) Right. But he is surrounded by some of the most famous um, pharaohs that we know. So his wife uh, was Nefertiti. Oh, right, right. Um, And she's got a fascinating history where at one point, he was kind of scratched out from the records after he died for obvious reasons. They kind of reverted back to um, their old religion beforehand and kind of like wanted to cover up everything that had happened previously. Yeah. but at one point in time, all records about Nefertiti just stopped. Um, there was no talk of her. She wasn't mentioned anywhere. And so there's kind of like competing theories about what happened. Some kind of belief that she was killed because she decided actually Artan's not the way. And her husband was like, well, I can't be with you. You are wrong. You're a heathen. And had her executed. Some people believe that um, she kind of usurped him. Right. Um, there's a, uh, a pharaoh that came after um, called Smencare, um who is kind of referred to with both genders. And there's not much referred to them, and they're not really talked about a lot. And it's very odd for a pharaoh in that time not to have a lot of mention and to be referred by both genders so they kind of have this theory that she took on this male embodiment and became a pharaoh in her own right and changed the way and um, so there's many different theories about um, her own history and then his son um, actually one more is that uh, she couldn't produce a male heir in King Henry VIII style and so he offed her and took another mistress and had a son who um, probably arguably one of the most famous pharaohs of all time Tutankhamun yep um, born as Tutankhaten, um, which essentially means um, the uh, the embodiment of Aten. Right. And then, even though he was a 12-year-old child, by the time he died, actually had a prairie political uh, purpose in Egypt's history because he reverted... <laughs> age 10 and 11 when he took the throne reverted everything his father had done he changed his name to Tutankhamun, which means the living embodiment of the god Amun so he's taken on this old religion again and he right. said no I am the son of Amun um, and he moved the capital back, and he set everything back up again. And this is a nine-year-old boy. Right. Um, and I think a lot of people know Tutankhamun as the the very wealthy. He died, and he was a little boy, and he had a lot of illnesses. But he was very like he was found with a lot of wealth and treasure, and that's kind of why we know him contemporary. But as a political figure for a ten-year-old boy to be, oh yeah. reverting the culture of a, a growing prosperous nation from this kind of heathenistic overlord <laughs> that
1: is fascinating i knew that he was young but mm. i did not know that he was that young like yeah. i thought it was like 17 or something like that I,
2: uh, I i knew it was actually under 18 but i thought it was like 16, yeah 17, i think but- he i think i can't remember the age he died it might be a bit older but he was very young to be having those types of Political influences yeah. very early on to know that he, to go against your own father. Yeah, um, they actually moved one significant factor. Um, he moved his body of his father, which obviously mummification. A lot of people know it's very sacred yeah. uh, process, and so to move the tomb of your father from where he buried in his uh, temple to Aten, all the way back to the Valley of the Kings, um, I believe is where he's buried. Um, was a very drastic and political move right of your own family as well yeah so you know we can kind of understand that maybe as a political motive but if you kind of look at a familial lens on that and it's like oh your father's own belief system and you've kind of desecrated yeah that so it's a very very loaded politically charged history that this this young pharaoh had before he died um but we mostly know him through howard carter and the you know, the wealth and the riches right. that were left in his tomb, which I find fascinating.
1: Right. Like, he did that at 10, and we have people who can't cope with Greta Thunberg saying, <laughs> oh,
2: the environment's <laughs> freaking me out. Exactly. And he was a very ill child. Yeah. He's like, um, the a lot of the scans after him showed he like probably couldn't walk. And he right. had a lot of trauma and his bones um, because they were quite inbred. Yeah. Um, Pharaohs, you know, I think one of um, Akhenaten's own children was um, his daughter's child. So he had a child, then used the daughter as a mistress. And, you know, that was pretty fairly common back yeah. in those times to keep it within the family. So obviously all these diseases and stuff started to build up.
1: Yeah. Wow, that is fascinating. That's always so exciting when you kind of know. This is what I mean. Yeah. I kind of know bits and pieces and, and mm. general gist, and then you hear that and you're like, far out. What, uh, where were you reading that? Is there somewhere that people could uh, find uh, mm. this history
2: that's fairly accessible? I find YouTube is great. So, right. um <laughs> Oh, YouTube, I've yeah, heard of it. <laughs> um, it was set up by the ancient Egyptians. Right. Uh, Tutankhamun actually did that as well. Um, <laughs> it was a busy couple of years. <laughs> yeah, it was very busy. Um, but, yeah, because a lot of the documentaries are quite old about ancient Egypt. Yeah. Um, a lot of them on YouTube, extended um, videos, and some of them are a little bit outdated. They found new things, or they disagreed about certain theories, and just like any kind of field in history but um for the most part i think they're a great source just to like sit back and watch yeah. and learn about this kind of culture and how people interacted with the world because it is so different to how we function now and i still even with that knowledge i still can't imagine how people just navigated life like that yeah how n- people navigated this system of multiple belief systems that are all true but incorrect at the same time or um living in a very hostile place yeah like they had the nile and so along the nile was quite lush but creating these grand structures that like um was hauling these giant stones that were only found in certain parts of northern africa all the way along the nile and doing that in the baking sun in the middle of a summer you know like all of these things you're just like how on earth Yeah, the civilization grows so big in a place as hostile like that with a a mindset that's so different to what we understand a functioning society quote unquote to be now
1: yeah when you read this stuff or you you, you listen to podcasts about this stuff it often I have have these moments where I'm like and there I was a little bit tired because I sat outside with my friends (laughs) during a summer under an umbrella and got a bit flaked out having a couple of drinks yep i and need to like... harden
2: up <laughs> <laughs> exactly i'm like oh i'm a little bit i'm a little bit warm can we turn the air yeah, on this... i'm sitting in the pub with a beer like oh it's a bit warm this is too much <laughs>
1: too much uh well that was uh great and uh, i'd love to have you come back on uh to the podcast and talk about some more stuff uh, and especially oh, love b- b- to. bring back some more uh stories about
2: egypt as oh, well there's and the so stuff many learn there's so many so many great characters um uh that kind of because it's such a long history i think yeah. people forget we merge it into this kind of like one package yeah of um either cleopatra or tutankhamun or maybe nefertiti um but it's thousands of years old and yeah. so there's different variances along the way and um uh every i actually studied hieroglyphs for a year that's what got me into oh really yeah. so i learned to read and write hieroglyphs for a year wow um So you must be wrapped with the emoji explosion. (laughs) So I'm I'm across this. Yeah, I know this. I got this down. Yeah. Um, And then there's all fascinating stuff within the language as well, just the written language and the use of images and the contradictions within itself. You know, you can read it left, right, up, down, backwards. Right. Um, Oh, yeah. It's just a... The more you go into it, the more unravels and the more you realise, oh, goodness, there's, there's so much you can get into.
1: Yeah, I know. It's like if... If you're going to go down a rabbit hole, go down a <laughs> rabbit hole of something interesting, people. Don't just be, you know, looking at uh, whatever it is. You <laughs> look,
2: know. I'm biased. Maybe someone's out there like, Greeks are better. Um, <laughs> uh, and look, I'm not going to say they're better or worse, but they're a good read nonetheless. They're all fascinating. Uh, where can
1: people find you on uh, social media or do you have a website?
2: Yeah, so I'm on social media under AJ Lamarck. I don't do as much Egypt content. Um, right. Actually, I was—I thought of ages ago. I've yet to write the show, but I wanted to create a show called Queen of Denial. Great. Um, obviously, pun intended. Um, and I was like, well, now I've just got to write the show. I've yep. got the name. <laughs> you know, that's usually half the battle. Um, so hopefully there'll be a lot of Egyptian content in there. But AJ Lamarck on social media. Okay, that's great. Uh, <laughs> thanks for coming on. That was fantastic. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank
1: you to AJ Lamar and Garth Jones for helping me make this episode of Big Squid for you. Remember, you can find AJ on the socials and Garth over at pasttheamel.com. I'm looking forward to having them back on the podcast soon. Uh, Hopefully soon. God, it's so hard to tee things up and get schedules in line. But there's stuff that we want to talk about. And uh, yeah, as I said, more work with these people uh, in the future. If you're enjoying this season, please leave us a great review at Apple Podcasts, or more importantly, suggest us to anyone who you think would enjoy our work. Word of mouth is actually the best way to go with these types of shows. And I know that the podcast world is flooded. I remember my old podcast, Can You Take This Photo, Please?, you know, you had to explain to people what a podcast was when I was first doing that. Uh I wasn't the first by any stretch of the means. I was introduced to it by uh, some uh, youngsters in Melbourne back in the day and, you know, the normal roots. But uh yeah, back, way back in the previous decade, you had to explain what a podcast was. I know there's you know, so many out there now, and it's hard to, you know, break people's routines and patterns, but if you would like to suggest it to those that you think would enjoy this, as I said, word of mouth is the best way to go. No stress. Don't feel like you have to. It would just be appreciated. I'll be back later in the week with our next episode in The Leftovers Rewatch. That's a fun episode as well. I've really enjoyed those. I'm trying to write slightly different podcast for The Leftovers. It's not just because it's me by myself, but I'm I'm trying to add a little bit more uh, poetry to the podcast. Not poetry. I can't really think. Never go off on a tangent when you're not quite certain what you want to say. But anyway, I'm just trying to make them feel a little bit fuller. And I'm trying to give you the feel that I felt when I would um, read Alan Sepinwall's reviews back in the day when I would watch an episode and not have anyone to talk to. And then I'd read Alan Sepidwell's recaps and I'd think, oh, this guy gets it. So I'm trying to give you that sense and make it a little bit more personal and a little bit quieter and a little bit more one-on-one. Anyway, that's coming up uh, later in the week Uh Next week, we welcome Ben Elwood back to the podcast to continue our Sophia Coppola series with Marie Antoinette. So that gives you a little bit of time to watch that movie if you want to get that in before you listen to the podcast. And don't forget, author Ryan Hughes, the author of XX, a novel graphic, is coming up soon. So if you want to rip into his novel about the world's first contact with alien life, and you know what? To be honest, that description is both correct and and doesn't do the novel justice. It's so inventive and it's so fascinating and it's it's mesmerizing and it, it really gave me that feeling at the end of 2001. You know, the end of 2001, the first time you watch it, you just go, what the fuck is happening? My mind is expanding. <laughs> that's what the book did. Anyway, that's coming up in a couple of weeks. So, you... Gives you enough time to get a head start on the novel if you want to get ahead of it a little bit. Oh, man, I can't tell you how rapt I am with the time he gave me. And also just what a great, fascinating guy. Just it's so much fun to talk to people who are incredibly creative and and it's there's more interesting ideas in that one podcast than you'll hear in most podcasts for a year. I know. Let's jump on the hyperbole train, people. I'm taking off. Okay, I'm rambling. Let's finish with a quote from Quentin Tarantino, the man who coined the term osploitation, and what he thinks of these Australian movies. Tarantino said... Australian genre films were a lot of fun because they were legitimate genre movies. They were real genre films and they dealt in a way like the Italians did with the excess of genre. And that has been an influence on me. Until then...